Welcome to this episode of Agile for Agilists. I am one of your co-hosts, Brad Nelson, and with me always is my partner, Drew Podwell. Hello, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about energy, the energy you bring to work, the energy you bring into your actions, the words you use, the train of thought, and the impact that you have. But even furthermore, as Agilists, it's our job to evaluate environments, teams, organizations, and look for opportunities for improvement. This is something that I know Drew is passionate about as well, and we were talking about is looking for improvements constantly. Does that make you feel more like a negative person? Or does that shape the way you think? Hmm. Something that I noticed during the pandemic is when I was working from home, I was staying in my room all day, which is where my office is. It's where I am right now, talking to you all from my bedroom. And I have really thick curtains for blocking out the sunlight. And that's something I've always had as someone who uses a computer a lot, as a gamer, and as someone who worked night shift. And I would work in my room all day long with the curtains closed. And then at the end of the day, I would be like, wow, it's kind of a gloomy day out, isn't it? And I'd step outside to go for my, my afternoon walk or to take the dog out. And the sun would be out and there'd be butterflies and birds flying around. It would be a complete shock. And so just by not seeing the sun all day, my mind automatically assumed that things were worse than they were outside. Got two things to say on that. I used to work at Nickelodeon, which is right in the middle of Times Square, in in the heart of Times Square, in the Viacom building. And I worked up on like the 48th floor. It was a pretty awesome uh, view from up there. The Viacom building is one of those buildings where the lobby actually isn't on the ground floor. Right, mm-hmm. because the ground floor of all the buildings in Times Square are like M M&M and M stores or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I would get to the top of the elevator in the lobby, right, and I would couldn't see the windows, but I could just see this glow of light coming up from the downstairs. And I would get excited, it's like, oh, oh, it's still daylight out, right, mm-hmm. in the middle of winter. And then I would get down onto the escalator, and I'd be like, ah, oh, you work in Times Square. It's it's always daylight in Times Square. <laughs> But um, you know, with regards to the pandemic, and I, I've met other people who share the same opinion, I felt like I was on top of the world. I hate saying this, and I think it's like a weird, and I've definitely got to unpack this, but I felt like I was operating at my best during the pandemic. I had a standing desk mm-hmm. and a balance board and coffee and two 28-inch monitors, and I was actively engaged with my clients every single day, and I wouldn't get up. And I absolutely loved it. Like I loved it. I felt so completely engaged and it just felt like every morning I was waking up to play the best game of chess that I was Mm. ever going to be able to play. And each day was a a new chess game. And I'm not feeling engaged like that anymore. You know, um, I'm definitely not. And I'm looking for that again, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, there's something to be said for like the unhealthy side of that, which is, sure, I had a standing desk and a balance board. I even bought one of those stupid bicycle chairs. <laughs> um, and, and the ridiculous thing about it was, it, you know, it doesn't have handlebars or a place for you to put your hands. So I'd be on these conference calls, and you know, either I'd have my hands dangling at the side while I'm like pedaling, or I've got them on my thighs and my arms are going up and down and it just does not look good. <laughs> that lasted for like a heartbeat before it just became a place for me to store my uh, dirty laundry. But um, So so it was like a unicycle? You're on a unicycle in a car? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like, yeah, it was, it was an exercise bike without handlebars, more or less. And it was on wheels and I could roll it in front of my desk and it was just so ridiculously nerdy, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculously nerdy. So I didn't have quite, I guess, the same feeling during the pandemic, you know, work-life balance, I think definitely is a problem in this scenario. But bringing it back to theme for today is energy. Do you think that always having a continuous improvement mindset and the idea that you can always do something better, does that stop you from having gratitude of all the things you've accomplished already? Oh, that's a different question that I thought you were going to ask. You know, I think that there's no straight answer there, right? Like sometimes yes, sometimes no. Like the question I thought you were going to ask was, does having an improvement mindset where you're always looking to improve things cause other people to look at you uh, as somebody who's always focusing on the negative? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that I think is a less 
or a more straightforward answer, but still not entirely straightforward. But it sounds like what you're saying is, is that if you're always looking to improve, do you miss the opportunities to stop in smaller roses? And and I've definitely, even recently, experienced like with the podcast, right? When we first started the podcast, I remember it was like a, like a few weeks later where I realized actually what an, what an accomplishment that was mm-hmm. because we had launched it and we continued to try to make it better. And, and so even though we did pause to high five a little bit, I don't think I actually internalized the milestone myself and the change that took place right in my life as starting to work on this with you. It, it took me a couple of weeks after the podcast launched for me to realize that sense of accomplishment. So I think that there's something mm-hmm. to be said there for for that, you know. I definitely feel like people have looked at me more negatively because I'm always looking for improvements, which I think is something we should unpack more in this episode. But as far as like stopping the smell of the roses, that is something I struggle with a lot. Like I'm a perfectionist, and when you, I, I don't know if it's necessarily my background, but I relate it to my background of not having much growing up and having desires to have more. And so I built this like hungry attitude where it's like, you know, I just hunger for more and more and more and I drive and drive and drive and I can always do better and I can always be better and I have to do better than everyone else because I don't have a degree and, you know, I don't have the connections. And so I just always have this achievement mindset where I achieve it and I'm happy for maybe a second, but I'm also not super comfortable with praise and gratitude either. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I feel the same way at times where... From certain people, praise means everything, mm-hmm. right? But from other people, and it's also the type of praise, it, it actually makes me uncomfortable. It makes me question whether it's empty praise, whether or not like I actually deserved it. Mm-hmm. That's, I, it's wild that you've said that too, but yeah. Yeah. It, I'm even more of a you know basket case. Apparently, I'm airing my laundry today in that I'm definitely more motivated by rewards than punishment. So I'm motivated by rewards and and recognition and praise, but I'm not comfortable when I receive it. (laughs) So, okay, here's a deep cut of vulnerability. For most of my life, right, and I'm 47 years old now, I turned 48 in a couple of months, so I might as well say I'm 48, but for most of my life, I used the avoidance of shame as a motivating factor, Mm -hmm. right? Um, for sure. As opposed to the desire for success. And and it took me like many years to kind of like, I was in therapy and and a therapist, you know, started talking to me about acceptance. And, and I, you know, I couldn't understand this idea of acceptance because, well, if I accept the way I am right now, then how will I be motivated to be any different? Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized like that was a, a flawed way of looking at it. And it's that I deserve success. Right. Right. Um, because I'm, I'm a hard worker and accepting the way things are within a specific moment is really an act of kindness to myself mm-hmm. and patience and self-empathy. So I'm glad you brought that up as well. Yeah. One thing I want to add is that I've brought this up a couple of times in the past is that, you know, I went through IPEX International Coaching Federation, ACC coaching program. Mm-hmm. And the way that works is uh, the ICF is a governing body and they don't run training. They have partners that run training and each of the partners has like specific criteria they need to meet, but their, their training goes through the lens of their model for, for coaching. And IPEC stands for the Institute of Professional Excellence in Coaching. Mm-hmm. And the background is in what's called core energy coaching. And the core premise of core energy coaching is that there is no more positive and negative right? Mm -hmm. There's only what's called anabolic energy and catabolic energy. Mm -hmm. And that catabolic energy is energy that consumes energy, whereas anabolic energy is energy that creates energy, right? So if you did a great job on something in the sprint and in the retrospective, I give you a shout out to say, Brad, thank you so much for doing things like that this sprint. It really meant a lot to me. It helped me out. And I learned so much, you know, so thank you, right? That is a way of me creating energy because I'm expending energy, but I'm creating energy and I'm transferring that to you, which then creates a positive flow and I shouldn't use positive flow, Mm -hmm. but a, a surplus of energy. Whereas sometimes like we as agilists, 
or even developers or whatever, we get back to the scrum room and we're like, oh man, can you believe those like jerk off like stakeholders? They're doing it again. They're absolutely doing it again. And, you know, they're so stupid. And <laughs> like we all bond together and we're like, oh my God, they're so stupid. You're right. They are stupid. And we high five and we make jokes. And I know that's not how it actually plays out, but that's an example of catabolic energy. Mm -hmm. There's a bond that's forming there, right? In that moment, everybody in the team is bonding, but we're tearing down energy as a result of that, even though a bond is, is forming tighter between us. And I, I think that's pretty common, right? For people to create that correlation on, on a negative note. on tearing It's called a it's called positive and negative emotional attractors. Mm. You can create a positive emotional attractor out of talking about stakeholders in a way that is positive, or you could do it in a negative way. But either way, it's a shared expression that people can plant their flag in and build a bond around. And if you're if you're doing that too much in the negative emotional attractor realm, if you're using negative emotional attractors as a way of creating team unity, the Navy does this, right? Mm. This is what the military does. The military teaches you to use negative emotional attractors to create cohesion within the organization, but you're going to have an organization that is founded upon that negative negativity. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So my family is very cynical, very sarcastic. People like bring a girlfriend to to the holiday dinner or whatever growing up, they would be caught off guard because they're so sarcastic that they don't even use the tone or winks or anything anymore. And it's just if it seems ridiculous or crazy, you're just supposed to assume it's sarcasm. Right. So you get a new haircut and they'd be like, wow, did a bag come with that haircut or, you know, whatever. Um, and you just be like, what? Why would someone say that to me? And you're like, oh, they're joking. So what goes on with sarcasm and cynicism is that the positive part of it is when you've laid out a zinger on somebody else that the group is mm -hmm. now like, oh, that's a funny one, Brad. That's the positive side. That's the carrot there. But at the same time, it's coming at the expense of one person. So it's kind of like a Ponzi scheme from an energy <laughs> perspective where you're getting the, the validation of the group at the expense of somebody else. You're transferring that energy. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that like cynicism and sarcasm is, is a bad thing. It's just to say that when that becomes the center point of the attraction between a group of people, it it has this effect of like, you know, I have terrible tinnitus. There's a ringing in my ear 24 hours a day. I've learned to live with that. But at the same time, there's a level of stress that I'm not realizing is there because it's just always there. I first kind of came aware of this when I was in my ICF training. And, uh, and stop me if I'm going too long on this, but hmm. there was a woman who was in my training class and while the instructor was talking and when other students in the class were, were talking, if they said something like, you know, weird or ironic or goofy or whatever, like there was something about her and something about me where we both knew we were on that same wavelength of, she just said doo-doo or something like that. You know, I mean, that wasn't what it was, but it was along those lines. And we both knew that like, we could trust each other to make fun of people behind their back in training class, which is really what we were doing. Um, <laughs> And then in the training itself, when we started learning about like positive and negative emotional attractors, you know, we realized like, oh, wow, we are forming a bond over negative emotional attractors right now. And maybe that's part of what we get a kick out of each other, but it shouldn't be the primary thing. And I'm not saying your family is bad. I'm definitely <laughs> not saying your family's bad. No comment. So uh, my first team lead at my current company that I'm at now uh, insight set up before. Don't need to hide it. Uh, so my first team lead, team lead when I started, his name's Brandon Deal. I'm going to guilt him into listening now because I said his name. <laughs> we have a really good relationship. But one of the things that is so amazing about him that always inspires me is I would I would confide in him when I'm frustrated or when something didn't go my way or I didn't achieve something that I tried for. And he is the most positive person I know. And he's just naturally that way. And he can immediately see the silver lining in almost everything. So I'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm frustrated that like I didn't achieve this thing. 
And he'll be like, yeah, but you came in like second or third place and you're running against people that have been working on this thing for 10 years or, or whatever it is. And he was like, that's something to be really proud of that, you know, in a small amount of time, you were able to accomplish what people or, or give a run uh, for their money for people that have been doing it for a decade or, or whatever the example is. And it's just amazing how he always it's just impulsive for him. It's always there. And I don't I'm so jealous. <laughs> I like to examine this sometimes where when I look at myself, I, I do see myself as that kind of person. I see myself as somebody who no matter what happens, I can always stand strong and find the thing in it that we should latch onto is the thing that we did well. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's a other side of that slope where what I worry about is, is it like a rose colored glasses thing? Mm, right. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that for the most part, I do have a great positive attitude and that I am actually looking for the upshot and I do really well with that. But I also think that there's times where maybe I'm protecting my ego a little bit, mm. trying to protect my ego and maybe it's a little bit of apathy. So I, I, I look at those things introspectively in myself. Yeah. So Sean Aker has a book and a fantastic TED Talk called The Happiness Advantage. And he talks about how in America, we have this achievement mindset where we have to achieve the thing and then we'll be happy. But it's actually backwards. If we're happy, we will achieve the thing. And that's why it's called The Happiness Advantage. And, and he's got different exercises you can actually do that supposedly make you happy. I say supposedly. I've noticed some effects when I do it myself, but I haven't built that tiny habit yet of always doing the things every single day, but it's, it's a fantastic read and it's very entertaining. And he's uh, what, what you would call a positive psychologist. And he talks about how psychology generally just tries to get us to like, okay, try to get you back to normal. Oh, interesting. And, and he's <laughs> trying to get, get us to like, uh, I guess we'll say positive here to, to a positive state of mind to like, what is happiness? What is what can we do to be at the highest performing, you know, human being? It's probably that word abundance that I cringe a little bit when people say, I want to live an abundant life. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I get it. And I do want to live an abundant life. I want to celebrate a quick win for a second, since we're on the topic of anabolic and positive energy. Yeah. You, you just mentioned a resource for the happiness advantage. And I took the time to write down on a sticky note, the happiness advantage so that this way, when we release the podcast, I could have a link to it in the bottom of the podcast. So awesome. awesome. Chalking that up as a win today. <laughs> the tiny habits. There we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's a guy that we're going to be talking to in a couple of weeks that I've mentioned to you before, Cena, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Cena is this just really great guy. The thing was, and he doesn't know this yet, and I'm going to talk to him a bit about this on the podcast. He probably knows this. I don't know. <laughs> when I first started working with Cena, I didn't like him. He was just so nice that I didn't trust him. Mm, right? He mm -hmm. was literally so nice and so positive that I, I didn't trust him. And that was the energy I showed up in our relationship with. And now that evolved, right? That evolved in, in the time that we worked together. And and I just realized that Cena's just a great guy and he's super nice and very authentic and vulnerable. And But it was really weird at first. I thought that he was out to get me or something and mm. just because he was so nice. And I think that was like my first step down to like really understanding agile culture. I also think that I was fresh off the wave of being beat down for 10 years mm -hmm. as a project manager. And when you're a project manager in the waterfall world and you're just always expecting that people aren't going to listen to you and that they're not going to take your ideas and they're not going to think about anything about improvement items, you know, you show up with that level of energy. And I think that's something I'm wondering like what your experience has been with that? It, it reminds me of, I don't know if it's a stand-up comic or it's just a, a recurring theme that I see on TV where like somebody's really outwardly happy walking down the street and everyone just hates them for it. Why is this person so happy? Uh, I think that's like a, I don't know, an American phenomenon or something. I'm talking more about the expectation that things aren't going to go the way you want them to go. Mm-hmm. 
at showing up with that level of energy, right? Showing up with the energy level and the mindset of today's probably not going to work the way I want, or mm-hmm. this conversation's probably not going to go the way that I want. And that when you go into that conversation or whatever the activity is, expecting that it's not going to go the way you want, that sometimes you can overcompensate mm-hmm. and overreact, even if it's at the micro subconscious level, which then creates that self-fulfilling prophecy of that conversation is not going to go the way you want. Definitely. Because you might not even have the open mindset, the growth mindset, the learning mindset to be aware of the attributes that say that this conversation is actually going well. Right. Yeah. I, I do think I've experienced that. And it reminds me of when I used to be on a sports team, Uh, I played soccer for 14 years. And before a game, you would lay there and you would picture yourself winning and doing well and all these things. And it's something that professional athletes do. It's something that they believe to actually help. And then, yeah, the same. You can set the tone for your entire day or engagement or anything by your mind. And uh, it's very powerful. And that's something that we talk about a lot in my house with my kids. You get frustrated first thing in the morning because of some arbitrary thing that's just a minor inconvenience. And then you tell yourself today's going to be a terrible day because of this one like five second thing and you let it ruin your whole day. Do you make your bed in the morning? Uh, no, I don't really. Yeah, I, I don't really either. Sarah does it. But uh, when Sarah was going to the city every day, I would make the bed every day because I knew it was a good thing that she appreciated. Mm-hmm. The reason why I ask is the sergeant, former Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps created a, a blog post probably about 10 years ago at this point, but he says that every morning he makes his bed and there's two reasons why every morning he makes his bed. In the morning when he makes his bed, he stops for one second, two seconds, three seconds, and he looks at his bed and he feels good that he made his bed. And so mm-hmm. that's his way of starting his day with one success, even though it's like maybe a trivial thing, right? It's Mm -hmm. one success. But then he takes that a step further because he knows that at the end of the day, he's going to get back into his bed and that he knows that he did something good for the future as well, right? Mm -hmm. It's, It's not just a milestone of success right now, but that he set himself up for success in the future. It's an investment in that future version of himself that's going to get into bed. And then at the end of the night, when he gets in his bed, he gets to feel the success of getting into a made bed again. And I try to create those kinds of habits in my life. I'm terrible at creating habits mm-hmm. or good habits at least. <laughs> but um, those are the kinds of things like as scrum masters, as agile coaches that we can do with our team, right? So like mm-hmm. for instance, like at the beginning of a sprint, making sure that at the beginning of a sprint, we have a small story that has low complexity, low risk, Definitely not low story points, but I'm not allowed to talk about that right now. That's going to have to wait. That we know we can complete and test and deliver early in the sprint as Mm -hmm. a way of saying, we got one done, everybody. Like We can do that. Or we could start off our sprint events with refining a story that is maybe it's one that we've been working really hard on and it's right at the finish line and we know that we're just going to be able to put it at the finish line. Or back when I was a scrum master and I was working face-to-face with people way back in the day before Mm -hmm. COVID, I actually had a rolling board, a rolling whiteboard that I had two scrum teams. So on one side of it was a complete and accurate, to the minute, up-to-date Kanban board that was also mirrored what was in JIRA for both teams on either side. And I told my, my developers, Whenever you're ready to move your your stories to a column, you come get me and I'm going to roll the board over to your team's room and you can move the story. And I let them do it. I didn't do it because the act of physically taking Mm -hmm. a post-it note and peeling it and moving it to the done column or moving it to the ready for, or the test column or whatever that is, is a ceremony that should be celebrated. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how have you creatively brought that level of energy to your teams, your clients, the people who work for you. What are some examples you've done? Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned thanking your future self or or doing things to your future self. That's something my wife says all the time. Do you load the dishwasher before you go to bed? Those sorts of things. You know, and and that's something that I definitely try to take into my work life as well. Uh, You can put stuff off to tomorrow, but like, how is your future self going to feel about that? 
And then I, I think it's also equally important to to thank your your past self when you as the future self get to reap that benefit. But as as far as habits go, you know, I'm also not the most successful so far at incorporating as many habits as I would like, but I've definitely changed almost like the core of my being, I feel like, through time with some pretty amazing personal transformational stuff. And there's there's two books that are basically the same thing. It's it's tiny habits and, my pen. and it's atomic my habits. Pen. Yeah. Uh, and I forget the guy's name off the top of my head, uh, but they talk about the psychology of of building habits or building and change. And it really comes down to like starting small. Right? What is the one thing that like you want to change and, and start small and then creating a trigger for it? What is, what is that thing that happens that you're going to to be reminded to do this thing? So if it's um, brushing your teeth that night before bed and you want to start flossing. Well, the, the trigger is when you go to brush your teeth, you floss like that's your reminder to floss as well. And then the third part, the crucial part is the reward. How are you going to reward yourself or whoever for, for doing that thing? And it can be something really simple or silly. You can give yourself, you know, Fonzie, Hey, you know, when you're done, <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. It's just something that is fun that rewards yourself. And so uh, I love like the, the tactileness of your story with the sticky notes. That's something that I've also tried to emphasize in person, which I'm not typically that way. Like I'm a very digital oriented person. And so I didn't get it at first. But that whole, yeah, like having them do that, I think is huge. And, and I'm really big on ownership and co-creation. When you're involved, when you have say in the things that you need to do, and you're the one that that is doing it, you care. You care so much more. And, and daily scrum or huddle or stand up or sync or whatever it is you do in your agile environment, that should be facilitated by your team. And the healthiest team that I saw, they, they had a stick essentially that they would pass around after each day, they would hand it off to someone else. And whoever had that, had the speaking stick, was the one that facilitated the next daily. So what I used to do with that, I love the speaking stick thing. I think it's great. But as a scrum master, I would go out to the store and I would buy like a plushie or like a figurine or something that was the team's name, mm -hmm. right? So it's super easy if they're team Avengers. But by making the the talking stick that you're talking about, or the if you've read Lord of the Flies, the, the conch shell, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, by making it the totem of that team, it has a lot of versatility then, right? Mm -hmm. Because the other thing that you could start doing there is that maybe the newest person on the team is the keeper of the totem. It's their job to bring the totem to stand up every day. you know. Or the other way you could do it is the uh, team could vote at the retro of who gets the totem that sprint. Mm -hmm. you know, And it becomes this thing that's not just functional from a standpoint of signifying whose turn it is to talk, but it's also this unifying object, then let's go see if we could sneak into the other scrum team's room and steal their totem you know, and, hi and hide it somewhere in the office. And so you've got to protect your team's totem as well. And that's a great way to start gamifying things. Yeah, a team I coached for, I, I didn't, in, like they did all this stuff before I, I became their coach, but they, so their talking stick, they worked on IAM, in the IAM space, their product was My Access. And so they're like, my access sounds like my axes, like the, you know, you chop wood. And so their talking stick was a foam axe. And then they would do like team days where they'd all go out to lunch together and they would all wear like red and black flannel on those team days. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Here's a quick story. So I was a scrum master for a team. They were all third-party developers. They kind of felt a little bit like outcasts in the organization, but not totally. Some of them were highly personable, but there was this one guy who was just super awkward. And I could just tell by his energy that he just wanted to feel like a valued member of the team, mm, right? Uh -huh. um, and it wasn't like in a, in a like toxic sort of weird way at all. But prior to me picking up that job, I had lost a significant amount of weight and I, I was really proud of my new fitness. And I would talk about it a bit. And this guy also had done the same. 
but he was your classic like developer with no fashion sense. Mm -hmm. And I kid you not, he wore his big boy jeans, even though he was no longer a big boy. And you know, when like you lose weight and you start to fold, your jeans start to fold over a little bit Mm -hmm. and when you just cinch your, his were like folded over like almost like six inches. And they look like he was wearing just like a, a denim, like, dress almost. And I never said anything about it, right? Because that's not my business. It's not Mm -hmm. my position. But one day I'd come into work one day with a new pair of jeans and he was totally like, those are great jeans. They look really good on you. And, uh, and so I pulled him aside for a second and I had this level of rapport with him. And I said, so listen, why don't you and I go across the street this week? Let's go jean shopping together, man. From an HR perspective, that's probably like a really like very slippery slope as to whether that's appropriate or not. But, but he loved it. And we went jean shopping together and I convinced him to buy two pair of jeans instead of one because I knew that he would be wearing those jeans every single day, <laughs> um, but he loved it and and he really felt good about it and he felt this connection to me and he felt mm-hmm. this pride about these new jeans that he was wearing and the team noticed it and that made him feel good as well. And I think that like we as scrum masters, we have a very special torch that we carry. Mm-hmm. We have to develop those kinds of relationships where it's okay to take some guy or maybe not some woman if you're a man, but it's okay to take somebody on your team shopping for new clothes if they've recently changed their body type, either bigger or smaller, right? You obviously want to get their permission first to make sure that that's an okay topic Mm -hmm. to talk about and really make sure you build a rapport where, where that's okay. But you want people to trust you and you want to find out what are the things that they feel good about and what are the things that they feel bad about and help them to feel better about more things and feel worse about less things and feel good about being a member on the team. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Waterfall, I'll say it again, Waterfall does not have a line item for that <laughs> in the project. Yeah, I, I, we've talked about before, Agile is culture. And culture is how you treat people and the environment you create and and the energy you put out. And it's funny because when I was younger, so so my mom is a psych major. And so I grew up kind of around psychology, really big into the topic as a layman, also really like philosophy as well. And when it came time for college, I was like, well, these are the things I'm the most interested in. However... I don't want to be a counselor, psychiatrist, psychologist. Like, I don't want to listen to people's problems all day for a living. And I don't really want to be a teacher. And those are kind of the only two things you can do with that degree, at least in my mind, right, as an 18-year-old. And now, as an agile coach, every day I'm teaching and being a counselor. (laughs) It's funny. We were talking about future Drew and and past Drew or future Brad and past Brad and present Brad and end of the day, Brad, Mm -hmm. I wish that past Drew had pursued a degree in psychology because, you know, I read a lot about it and it's just so fascinating to me, understanding like why people think the way they think and sociology as well. I did Mm -hmm. take a few courses in, in psychology. I took some sociology as well. Regrets are, are they're they're just pointless, you know, Mm -hmm. but I love that stuff. And and I think it absolutely, if you spend time learning a bit about what makes people tick mm-hmm. f- from a scientific, psychological perspective, the degree of success that you'll find as a scrum master, as a coach, will just exponentially propel you forward, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. My, my first presentation I, I ever gave, I incorporate some psychology into that and I do incorporate psychology in everything I do, even if I don't know it. And some of the things that we teach or, or that we have have been like businessized, like Dan Pink's autonomy mastery purpose is really Edward Dietschy's, um, uh autonomy, competence and relatedness. Like it, it existed before him in psychology. And so in the first thing I, I teach like, organizational change, essentially, before I even knew that term, is really understanding the psychology of individuals and understanding that in order to to change, like you have three levers, right? It's the, the things that you do, your behaviors, it's your emotions, and it's your thoughts. 
And these are things that a counselor will talk to you about because if like you go to a counselor and you're like, I'm depressed, I'm sad, I feel lonely because nobody likes me. But then, so, so you're thinking these thoughts in your head, nobody likes me, you're feeling the feelings and then you stay home, you don't go anywhere, you don't do anything. And so your behaviors reflect that and you never give yourself the chance to change that narrative. Now, one of those levers that you want to change, you, you can't just will yourself to be happy. Like to my knowledge, impossible. You can't just say like, oh, I'm happy. There is cognitive reprogramming where you can, when you have a thought, say, no, I don't want to think that way. I, I would rather think this way or I should be thinking this way. But that's really hard too. But the behavior, the behavior is the easiest thing for us to change. Simply going out and experiencing the world and meeting people gives you the opportunity to have someone like you or not like you, but it gives you a chance to change that narrative. And that's the power of the Scrum Framework is like we're changing your behaviors to do things that promote continuous learning and inspection and adaption. You reminded me, I get seasonal, what is it called? Seasonal affective mood disorder. Mm -hmm. My whole life, I easily fall into the doldrums. Never bad, never like, you know, to a really bad spot. But I remember it was the, the winter before I met Sarah and I was living alone. I was in Brooklyn. You know, when you live in New York City, if you don't have plans already on a Friday night, you're not going to find plans. Mm. And, you know, you could go to the bar and see if you're going to meet somebody. But, you know, in your 40s, like, I, I would just go to the bar and, and I would come home at the end of the night feeling even more depressed because, you know, I didn't meet anybody, not specifically women, but friends, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it got to the place that winter where... I would just go home on a Friday night. I wouldn't even think. And then I remember one night I was sitting at home and I was like, if you don't have plans on a Friday, you're not going to be able to feel good on a Friday. And mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to solve that problem. But something like clicked in my head and I was, why don't you buy concert tickets? And so I went online and I, I bought probably four or five concert tickets for February, March, April. And and suddenly, like just the act of having that in my future, knowing mm-hmm. that, like I, I bought tickets to see Victor Wooten. You ever listen to Bela Fleck and the Flecktones? I, I don't think so. You're going to have to share. Yeah. I bought uh, Victor Wooten tickets. I bought tickets to see, uh, oh shoot, the, the guy who originally sang The Way It Is, um, Bruce Hornsby. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, an 80s easy, easy listening kind of guy. But knowing that I had those to look forward to, right, pulled me out of that funk because now it was like I had this thing to look forward to. And those are the kinds of things that we can do with with teams as well, like creating these these future sort of milestones that, oh, we're going to get to work on this feature in the future but, or, or things like that. Or, or We're agile. Up. We don't plan. Well, yeah, but we could still focus on like outcomes and we could still say that in sprint number 12 or whatever it is, we're all going to go do some training together or we're going to do an offsite at this axe throwing place. Or if Mm. the team hits this metric point, then as a scrum master, I'm going to get the team name tattooed across my knuckles. That never (laughs) happened. um, Maybe for you, Brad, but uh, I've already got too many bad tattoos. I can't Uh, afford anymore. So I was joking about the planning thing, and and maybe that's another episode for us to talk about. Like, there is planning in Agile. One, we plan all the time. And two, I mean, we have roadmaps. They're just not, you know, built out to to the most minute detail. Uh, And and I love that. I love that that look forward, creating those experiences. And when we were in person, one of my favorite things was happy hour. Being able to, whether you're celebrating a, a really great sprint or delivery or release, or you need to pick me up from a, a rough time. There's nothing like coming together in person. And, and I've yet to create a great alternative virtually for that. Yeah, there's a great game on the Nintendo Switch that Sarah hates. And, and I wish she liked it <laughs> because it's, you know, um, have you ever heard of Overcooked? Yeah, yep. Yeah, my wife and I <laughs> beat that me. together. <laughs> so I kind of wish there was like a browser-based version of that game because it would be such an amazing game to play with teams as a way to demonstrate self-organization, problem solving, and iterative development cycles and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's a fun game, but um, we've done a couple of, like I remember during the pandemic, we did a virtual 
virtual escape room, which is like weird, but, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe it wasn't a virtual escape room. Maybe it was like a virtual whodunit, but that was fun. Or one thing that we did that I, when I was at Madhive and I did this with Maria, we partnered with a nonprofit called Skate Like a Girl. And what their mission was, was to provide every girl who wanted in America with a free skateboard and and skateboard coaching, right? So like they have these facilities around the US and where if you're a girl, you can go to it and you could skate with some pros for an afternoon and, um, and they give you a free skateboard. And so th- what the hmm. event was, before the event, they shipped all the employees who wanted to participate a box. And in that box was an unassembled skateboard. And on the call, we had a female skater um, mm-hmm. and the one of the outreach members of the the nonprofit. And they, you know, they showed us videos of, of, of great things that they do while we assembled the skateboards. You know, they taught I remember when I was a kid, I assembled my first skateboard when I was really young, so I knew how to do it. But mm-hmm. I feel like I just had to say that. I don't know. <laughs> You're so cool, Drew. <laughs> so cool, man. I know how to make a skateboard. Gnarly, um, man. But um you know, and then we decorated it in the way that we wanted. And then we put it back in the box with a, you know, a label that they had sent us and we sent it back out. And, uh, and it was just a great like little team building event that was a lot of fun. So there are ways that you could do virtual happy hours still, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Madhive did send us alcohol. Like we, we had alcohol that they, I think we did at least, or maybe, no, they didn't send us alcohol. They sent us drink mixers and, and recipe books for various cocktails mm. and we supplied our own alcohol and you know we did these virtual happy hours that way um, i think they also gave us like uh gift cards that we all used to either buy alcohol or you know whatever it was <laughs> but they didn't actually buy us alcohol um, yeah i have a buddy who um who does bourbon tasting virtually kind of similar thing where he sends everyone the same bottles and they try them all together. That's if you ever seen the video and this is definitely going into the, the links at the bottom of this episode, <laughs> it's so inappropriate, but there's a, a video of a, of a famous bourbon taster who's doing his YouTube live stream, tasting the bourbon literally while his wife is packing up and leaving him oh, <laughs> and he's wow. just like ignoring her <laughs> it's just so bad you'll have to tell me later on if i have to cut that out or not <laughs> <laughs> let's get back on topic right because we're, we're talking about energy within mm-hmm. our teams we're talking about showing up with the energy we haven't really said it yet we've skirted around this issue but the scrum master is the arbiter of anabolic positive energy with the team, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was talking with one of my clients today and I was giving a rah-rah to all of their leaders. And I said to them, guys, we're about to launch. If you want people to demonstrate things that you want them to demonstrate, you guys got to set the stage for that. And that's totally true with Scrum Masters as well. So yeah, I, yeah. I, like I, I often say I'm not a fun coach. I'm not really the one doing like games and icebreakers and those sorts of things. Typically. Now, if a team wants it, I will go out of my comfort zone to do it. And I think that's really what it's about is understanding what your team needs. I know a lot of agile coaches and scrum masters that essentially force fun on their teams. Yeah. And some teams need that, but some teams really hate it. And you really have to read that. Well, that's the thing is you can never force fun. I'm thinking about Clark Griswold in uh, the National Lampoon's vacation on their way to Wally World. And we're going to have so much fun. We're going to be whistling zippity doo dah out of our butts. Um, (laughs) You can't force fun, right? And you shouldn't try to force fun. But what you should try to do is find out what type of fun the team likes. You know, Mm -hmm. not all teams like Nerf guns, right? Not all teams like building skateboards. Not all teams like a team totem. Not all teams like running over to the other team's scrum team room and stealing a team totem. But all teams, all people like fun. Everybody likes fun. It's just a matter of finding out what kind of fun they like. Some teams like fun, but they're afraid to have fun with other people, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
like how do you create that level of vulnerability to disarm people and enable them to trust having fun in front of other people you know mm-hmm. and so like when you say you're not the fun coach i know that i'm definitely <laughs> I want to curse right now. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I am the motherfucking fun coach, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's not to say that I'm not a disciplined and dedicated coach, right? But my personality type, it's very easy for me to try to stimulate that fun. But I'm also very aware of who's up for fun and who's not up for fun. Where I'm not so good is timing of that, right? Like, when is it appropriate for Drew to make a joke on this podcast? And when is it not appropriate <laughs> for Drew to make a joke on this podcast? Yeah. So I would like to think of myself as more of a calming force. I'm very stoic and people have said that. When it hits the fans, I'm pretty good at trying to keep everyone calm and working through it. But speaking of being a nerd, like I enjoy what we do. Like to me, software development and product management and agile is fun. So I have fun just doing it. So to me, it, I don't need to come up with these creative ideas to make it more fun because it, it is fun. Well, I mean, that gets back to me saying I love the pandemic because I got to play chess every single day. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely. Hands down. I love that. But let's do an exercise real quick. Is that okay? Do I have your permission to run an exercise? No. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's do That's it. That's fair. Do I, it. I, I, I respect <laughs> that as an answer. Let's Moving on. So what type of fun do you like? Um, let's see here. Watching grass grow, um, <laughs> smelling paint. No, I, I don't know. Uh, so in my free time, like I listen to music. I'm really big in music. Music is a huge part of my life. If like those of you that are familiar with my Instagram, when I get around to it, I draw, you know, musicians. Uh, I've spent way too much time on playlists. I mean, I just love music. I have vinyls. So even though I can't play it, which I always joke, my midlife crisis will be I'll I'll pick up an instrument. But um, I just love music. So in my free time, I I do spend a lot of time listening, enjoying, discovering new music. Okay. And so have you ever been on a team where there's been somebody else that enjoyed music or art in the way that you've enjoyed it? Not, Not a scrum team per se, but my recruiter, like he and I both share music a ton. Okay. Well, so like if I were to say to you, let's say we were on a team together, I was a scrum master, you were a developer because you developed code before and I haven't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I had this idea for let's create a weekly team playlist and each week somebody new is going to start that. Hey, Brad, you love music. You've got a great taste in music, right? Would you be up for creating our first team's playlist? What are the what are the guardrails? What are what's the acceptance criteria? The acceptance criteria here is that you've created a playlist of songs that you feel are great songs that maybe we won't specifically like and love and listen to on a regular basis after this week, but that you think it's a relevant music, it, it mm-hmm. should be part of everybody's collection. And maybe in the next uh, retrospective as an icebreaker before we start, you could tell us a bit about why you've selected some of the songs. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's a very small thing that you can infuse. And I do some of that stuff, but that's not like a really in-depth icebreaker, for example. Well, it doesn't start off as one, right? But there's probably going to be one other person on the team that loves music as much as you that's going to be really excited. And they're going to feel bummed out that I said, hey, Brad, can you create the next playlist? And that mm-hmm. they're going to go home that night and they're going to start creating their playlist because they can't wait for their turn. Then it just starts to become a thing, right? Because now two people have created a playlist mm-hmm. and two people have gotten a chance to share why that playlist has been curated the way it is. And you know, or like another example is like what I used to do was called um, a weekly stand down. And mm-hmm. uh, we did it every Friday and it was optional. And I would book a conference room and I would make sure that it had like audio video stuff set up. And have you heard of what's called a Pecha Kucha? Yeah. So we did it in the format of Pecha Kucha, where, and for those people who don't know what Pecha Kucha is, it's a Japanese form of salon where each person gets, I think it's three minutes, but I think we did like five minutes to talk about 
whatever they want to talk about. It could be about a video game. It could be about an author. It could be about a vacation that they took and they could do a slide share. Mm-hmm. And you know, people would come into the room and they would talk about whatever they wanted. And we had some people that were there every week and some people that would show up every now and then. I might notice that you don't show up to these things. And I also might notice that you've got a scrapbook where you've got your art. And I might say, hey, Brad, you know, I know that you don't show up to these things, but you've got some really great artwork. And I don't know if you would feel comfortable with this, but would you ever be interested in taking us through either your creative process or you know, showing us some of the drawings that you've done that you're particularly proud of? Or maybe if you don't want to show us your art, maybe there's somebody else's art that you know has inspired you that you feel is noteworthy. Would you be interested mm-hmm. in maybe coming to the next uh, Pecha Kucha event and, uh, and showing us that artwork? Yeah. I just think that there's so many different types of fun to be had, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you just got to figure out what is the hook, right? What's the, the itch that your team needs scratched? And it doesn't have to be everybody, right? Mm-hmm. It could just be with one or two people and it opens up to great things, you know, because people then see that other people are enjoying this thing and maybe they want to join in or maybe they want to change the rules of the game. Maybe somebody's like, I don't really like to listen to music, but I love podcasts. Mm-hmm. Can I create a podcast of the week for the team? And sure, let's create a podcast of the week for the team. Or I don't really like podcasts and I don't really like music, but I really love Twitter. Would you guys be okay if I created a Twitter feed for the team? Mm-hmm and started sharing things to that Twitter feed? Memes um, of the week. Memes of the week. <laughs> yeah. When, when I worked in an IoT department, they had a camera that would scan everyone's face that came in and would play a theme song for them. Oh, that's super cool. Um, Do you know what the first ever webcam was? Uh, I don't think so. So it was, I think, the 1980s. I might be wrong. I think it was the 80s, could be the 90s. Cambridge University's robotics lab, right, was mm-hmm. a clean room environment. And in order to get in, if you've never worked in a clean room environment, you you go into a locker room, you put on a paper suit, you put on gloves, face mask, you put on a head scarf, you put on your hood and then goggles. And then you walk into a small little hallway, the door shuts behind you, and then air shoots at you from all directions and there's a collector that sucks all the dust particles off of you. And after like however long the, the timer is set for, then the other door unlocks and you could walk in. So they had a coffee pot in the break room. And in order to get to the break room, it took them like 15, 20 minutes to be able to leave the clean room, get undressed, and then go get coffee. And they would find that oftentimes they would show up to the coffee pot and there was no coffee in the coffee pot and it hadn't mm-hmm. been made yet. And so they created a webcam and it was just a regular camera that was set up to take a photo every three minutes or whatever it was and upload it to a web server so that they could see if there was coffee in the coffee pot or not. And if there wasn't coffee in the coffee pot, they could call somebody who wasn't in the clean room to go make coffee so that this way, by the time they left, there would be coffee ready for them. Um, uh- I think I have heard that story now that you mention yeah. it, but yeah, it's pretty funny. I love little like internet, like arcana like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you're solving right problems. There. Like that's the best technology or, or is technology that solves problems. Yeah. So on the positive negative energy topic and something that I feel like we, we also haven't quite hit on yet. It seems like we have a lot to talk about in this subject. As I mentioned early on, always looking for improvements coming across it as being kind of negative. And I think that's something that I have definitely personally experienced and suffered from. And some of it is probably my demeanor. Some of it's probably how the words I'm using and all of that. But I am definitely a very like, I scrutinized and very particular person. I know you've been on the other end of that a few times as we work on this podcast. I'm a very detail-oriented person. When I was in QA, I found way more bugs than everyone else because I just scrutinized the hell out of stuff. That makes me really, really good at continuous improvement as an agile coach because I see things that other people don't see. And I know that because other people have told me 
I see things that they don't see. And it seems like people are taken aback by it sometimes. And I also have a, a fairly direct demeanor as well. And so I feel like that allows me to be so much better when it comes to improvement and giving advice. But if you only ever give advice, you only ever point out the bad things, right? Like you come off as a negative person. Yeah. You know, the, the way that I describe it is that organizations have impediments. Teams have impediments. Mm-hmm. They also have delivery, right? The thing is, is that when you become a bigger impediment than their impediments mm-hmm. and a bigger impediment to their delivery than the pace, that to me is what the trick is. And I'm not saying I'm a, I'm still probably somewhere between shoe and ha with this, but um, figuring out how to pace the coaching of, of agile capabilities, right? Mm-hmm. And not just figuring out how to pace, but reading the willingness, reading the room mm-hmm. and figuring out then on top of that, it's the right language, right? How do I present this impediment or these impediments? Do I present all of them? For me, it's, is this the hill I want to die on? Like I always right. run that litmus test as well. You know, the other side of the coin is rarely are you in an organization where you can figure out the pace for which you can surface impediments and action upon impediments is the right pace for the expectation of senior leadership who don't mm-hmm. understand the art of coaching, right? And right. now you're stuck in the middle of that ever increasing spot of the team's patience and pace and appetite for improvement items and the expectation of the client and stakeholders or sponsors need for moving things along, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I view it a little bit as like smelling the roses, how we started this conversation. As an agile coach, when you're starting, especially with a relatively new team, in your mind, you already have a roadmap of this builds off this, off this, off this, off this. And so you know, you have more of an end state in mind of where you know this team can grow to. And it's remembering that every little win is a win and celebrating that. But what's funny is I I had one team, I I took that approach, I was like, you know, I'm gonna, you know, drip feed these, these things to them, as they ask, and as we have conversations. And then there was something that built off of this advice that I had that they'd been working on for a while. And the one guy was like, man, why didn't you tell us this months ago? And oh, I, I said, that. I said, you weren't ready for it months ago. <laughs> the worst one is, why didn't you tell this months ago? And you did tell them that months ago and they just didn't want to talk about it months ago. Well, <laughs> there's that too. Yeah, yeah, that definitely happens too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like hey, your point though about that balance between like, and it's, it's a little bit of an art. There's not like a meter that says like, okay, this is how much I can action right now. Uh, but trying to balance that energy for sure. So, you know, I'm going to make a polite suggestion, which is totally not a coaching attribute, right? Um, Not at all. But uh, I think, and I'm going to say it in a non-coachy way too. um, I really think that you should find a ACC program, an ICF ACC program and take that because I think that you would love it. I think you would love it because you get to learn about psychology and taking the time to learn what it means to be a coach, agnostic to agile, agnostic to scrum, right? Learning about people's energy, learning how to read people's energy, learning how to help them unblock their energy. Like we've talked about this a little bit, like in IPEC, we talk about the seven levels of energy being apathy, anger, forgiveness, compassion, peace, joy, absolute passion. And that at each of those stages, there's a core thought and a core feeling, right? So mm-hmm. at level one energy, when your your thoughts are that of a victim, you're feeling apathetic. And as a result, your action is going to be lethargic. You're not going to be eager to run into action if you're feeling like a victim, like you're just mm-hmm. you're, you're powerless, right? Right. The next phase being, you know, the feeling of anger, which your core thought is battle, it's conflict. And the result there sometimes becomes defiance, you know? Now, the great mm-hmm. thing about that is that's that's a transition, right? Because 
the next phase is is forgiveness, right? The feeling of forgiveness and the core thought there is a sense of responsibility. And in that phase, you become more cooperative, right? And that's mm-hmm. where teamwork starts to happen, where, you know, um, I found that by learning about these things, you could hear there's like key phrases that people have when they're feeling like a victim. They talk about like things happening to them. Why is mm-hmm. it that product won't listen to us? Why is right. it the product keeps on doing this to us, right? You know, that's a victim mentality, right? Whereas conflict is things like product says we have to do this, well, we're not going to do that, right? We're going to mm-hmm. do it like this. Whereas forgiveness and responsibility, when teams are at that level of energy, they're starting to think about cooperation, right? Well, let's, you know, I, I know we haven't really been leveraging our team backlog refinements really well. We've been doing them in private because the, the product owner hasn't been agreeable to us. But I think we're at a phase right now where we should start bringing the product owner into these team backlog refinements because doing it in absence of them hasn't been helping us to the degree that it can. Mm-hmm. Starting to understand the level of energy that a team, and this is total tambourine shaking (laughs) and bongo banging, but getting a sense of what level of energy a team is resonating at is helpful for you to figure out how do I help them to step into a higher level of energy, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so, you know, when a team is being like victim minded, right? Right. Like, hey guys, it sucks. I, I hear you. You know, it sounds like the fact that the product team is doing this to you right now. Of course, you guys should feel this way. It makes sense. Hey, mm-hmm. what would it feel like though if we tried this? Maybe if we tried it like this, how, how would that look for you? Let's say for a second that maybe we're going to go into this meeting this time around, and it might not work the way that you're planning. Right? Like, mm-hmm. what if you know the product owner was receptive? How would you approach that? Right? And it gets them thinking outside of their their paradigm. Um, yeah. So I think you would really love that kind of training because of your love for psychology and sociology and philosophy, right? Comes yeah, to play there. Definitely. Yeah. Send me send me a link on the training and we'll we'll include it with all the other links from today's yeah. episode. I've actually been hesitant to add it, but I'll I'll add it now because I've brought it up a couple of times. I'll add yeah. it to this one. Yeah, definitely. You, you reminded me of one of the things that I that I do coach a lot on teams. I see this come up time and time again, and it's you know in the similar vein of like how we present ourselves, and it's that teams with dependencies on other teams they tend to go to that team and say, "You need to make me this thing," and that's it, right? Like you're commanding them, or you might say, "I need this, and I need this by this date." Instead of saying like, hey, you know, you provide this service for me or this product or, or whatever it is in your organization, you know, here's our roadmap coming up. We're going to need some work from your team. Can you give us an estimate of when you think you'd be able to get to this work? Right. And, and so you're asking instead of telling. And a lot of friction between teams is because they don't consider the other team and the other people that they're making requests of. You know, and the thing with that is that the scrum masters from those teams, right, should be back channeling with one another, you know, and the bond between scrum masters should exist even when a bond between teams might be, might be stressed with some friction. And like, you know, a scrum master can go into that with negative energy, right? And say, why is it that your team is never able to align on our dependencies. Or another way of approaching that might be, hey, our teams have a difficult time aligning on dependencies. What cooperative strategies do you think that you and I could deploy where we can help our teams learn how to create better dependencies with one another? Yeah. Yeah. Why does your team never get get me what I want when I want it? Well, you never asked us what else we had going on, right? Like- yeah. Which again is why, like I, I said in the last episode, I do think that being a scrum master is akin to being uh, an international spy. You know, like <laughs> you know, you're working with the other operatives to try and create change without anybody realizing that you're doing it. 
Well, this has been a good one. I, I had, like, to be honest, to be frank, I had my doubts about what we were going to talk about. Like, I had some ideas. I wasn't fully aligned with what you wanted to talk about when we got started. But I think that there's a lot of really great stuff in this episode. There's a lot of great ideas. There's actionable concepts that we've given the listeners mm-hmm. as well. Maybe in future episodes, we can maybe do a better job of of like highlighting this is an actionable concept that you could take with you back to your teams tomorrow <laughs> and try out. I'm glad that you brought this up as a topic and I think that we should continue to evolve on this topic as well because there's there's a lot to unpack. There's so much more definitely. to unpack. Yeah, yep. Thank you, Drew, for taking this on. It's definitely something I'm passionate about. I think we both are. And yeah, it's there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, and if there's one last lick takeaway, I think it's read the room. <laughs> yeah. yeah read read the room <laughs> yeah I, I would say be conscious of of the impact your behaviors are having yeah well cool thanks again brad thank you drew